How does Christianity stand in marked distinction to Islam? How does Christianity stand in marked distinction to Mormonism? How does Christianity stand in distinction to some Christianity? As we think about Mark chapter 2, again, keep in mind that to this point in Mark, we have found that Jesus is unique. He's one of a kind. He is the good news. We found that Jesus is God's son. Also, he baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He has a father who is pleased with him. He is yielded to God's spirit. He is able to resist Satan. He is intimately related to the kingdom of God, being near. He teaches with authority. He's commanded an evil spirit to come out of a man. He has authority over sickness and over demons. And he healed a man with leprosy. That's just in chapter 1 of Mark. Christ stands in distinction to all the religious founders of the world and all the religions of the world. He is qualitatively different. This is why Christianity is not a religion. It's a relationship with God, with Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God living within, working within us. This is why we can claim that Jesus is the only way to a relationship with God. And why we can be convinced that what we present concerning Christ is correct. No one ever begins to come up to Jesus. Who he is and what he has done. Christianity stands in distinction, as I said, to the religions of the world because of the identity, the being, the action of Jesus. Christ is to Christianity what the blood, heart, lungs, and liver are to your physical body. Christ is to Christianity what a baseball is to the game of baseball. With those thoughts in mind, let's turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 reading together, verses 1 through 12. Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, and I would ask you, at the end of verse 12, we find that everyone is amazed and they're praising God. I would like for you as a congregation to read the last sentence in verse 12 when we get to that point. Mark 2, I'll begin reading with verse 1. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus, and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Now, some of the teachers of the law were saying, 
or sitting there thinking to themselves. Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier? To say the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, get up, take your mat and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive this, to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, Now, as we discuss this portion of Scripture, keep in mind that Jesus continues to have the four men that he asked in chapter 1 to come and to follow him. They remain with him. They have observed what he has done in chapter 1. They're observing what is taking place in chapter 2, chapter 3, and so on. Also, in Mark chapter 2, 1 through chapter 3 in verse 12, we find there's five compact narratives that deal with the authority of Jesus. In verses 1 through 12 of chapter 2, there's a question concerning the identity of Jesus. And Jesus makes it very clear who he is because he forgives the sins of the paralytic. And the teachers of the law immediately recognized, this guy's forgiving sins. Well, only God can do that. They recognized that he was claiming to be God, and then he also healed the paralytic. In chapter 2, verses 13 through 17, we find that Jesus calls a tax collector to follow him. Here he is calling the reject of society to follow him, and he even eats in his house. He has authority to call tax collectors. In chapter 2, 18 through 22, we find that he makes some pronouncements on fasting. And he says when the bride is, bridegroom's here, the bride doesn't fast. And John's disciples had a problem with that. In chapter 2, 23 through 28, we find Jesus teaches on the Sabbath, and he basically says, you know, I get to change the rules on the Sabbath if I choose to please because, you know, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. And then in chapter 3, 1 through 6, we find that he's healing on the Sabbath day, which was a no-no. And because he healed on the Sabbath day, he is the Lord of the Sabbath. He can heal on the Sabbath day. We find that some people wanted to kill him. And then in chapter 3, 7 through 12, we find a summary of the authority of Jesus. Jesus is shattering the religious world. He forgives sins. He eats with a tax collector. He makes some shifts in fasting. He makes some statements about the Sabbath. He's presenting who he is as a son of God is coming out. The events in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, it says a few days later, taking place a few days after what was recorded in chapter 1. In chapter 1, we know that on the Sabbath day, he cast out a demon 
We know that he taught with authority. He healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then he went to other parts of Galilee, and there he taught. He healed people. And then he is returning to Capernaum. And again, it's a few days later. And who are the people? It says a few days later when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered that there was no room, not even outside his door. There's a crowd of people. The house is full. It may have been Peter's home. We're not positive, but the house is full. There's a crowd there. Crowds are interesting in Gospels Mark, or Mark's Gospel. <clears throat> you have to forgive me about my words getting tied up this morning sometimes. But crowds are referred to nearly 40 times before chapter 10 in Mark's Gospel. And we'll comment more on that as we go through Mark. They form an audience for his teaching and they're objects of his compassion. But Mark never describes them as turning to Jesus in repentance and faith. In respect to understanding and faith, crowds generally demonstrate passivity and fickleness. And they often obstruct access to Jesus, as in this case. The four carrying the paralyzed man couldn't get to Jesus. They constitute outsiders who stand in either oblivion or opposition to Jesus. So here we find a crowd along with four men who are carrying a paralytic. And these guys had great faith because they're bringing a man to Jesus and then we know that they tore through the roof and so on. We have the paralytic himself. And I want you to understand, and I'll come at more on this next week, the paralytic is paralyzed. And there was a belief that physical illness was directly related to the sin in the life of a person. So this man apparently sinned, they would be thinking, and that's why he was paralyzed. And as Jesus forgives sins, it kind of throws the teachers of the law a curve because he forgave sins. Didn't even heal the guy. He forgave his sins. So that was the mentality. Hmm, there's Pastor Dan. He has some physical problems. What's his sin? Dan Rader had some problems a number of years ago. What was his sin? And Jesus, again, is blowing that. But the four bring the paralytic to Jesus. And remember who he is. In light of what we said before. And then we also have the teachers of the law. They're the theological heavyweights. They stand in sharp contrast to Jesus. Here's Jesus, a carpenter, but yet the Son of God. And the theological heavyweights, and they're going to you know, think some things about Jesus. So we're in Capernaum in a home on the turf of the people. That is, in a home where people lived. 
And you'll notice at the end of verse 2, you know, no one else could get in. And what did Jesus do? He preached the word to them. One of the characteristics of Jesus is that he preached the word. Now, unless we get a misunderstanding of what it means to preach, we tend to think of preach as, well, there's Pastor Dan. He gets up and he says something. That's preaching. You know, it takes place within the four walls or, you know, some mass area where you've got a lot of people. Preach basically means to talk. It's a faculty of speech, to discourse, to make a declaration. This was taking place in a home. I want you to get that to register. Preaching is not merely doing what I'm doing. Preaching can be Jesus talking to a crowd in a home. It may be you on the job talking to a co-worker about current events and you bring in God. Or you just talk about current events and you challenge and encourage thinking in a certain direction. Preaching may be you're communicating to a student, a fellow student in school, who's having a relational problem with other students. Preaching may be you're talking to a parent about Christ. So I want that to register. When you read preach, don't think a building, a crowd of people, and someone standing up. That may be an aspect of it. But see beyond that, and the preaching is taking place on the turf of the people. That's critical also. And he is preaching to the crowds. And you will find over and over that his ministry involves preaching and healing and so on come second. Preaching, teaching were central. Miracles were not the only ministry. The miracles confirmed that what he taught and what he preached and who he was were correct. The healings merely confirm his being, his authoritative teaching. Get hung up on Jesus and his message, not merely his miracles. So while he is preaching, some men came to him bringing a paralytic, carried by four of them, Since they could not get to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus. And after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now when you think about these men having faith, keep in mind that a Mideast roof would have had beams running maybe a couple feet apart, parallel to one another, going in one direction. And then what would happen, they would take branches, they may take thorns, they may take thistles, and they would lay them across the beam, those beams, the opposite direction. And then what would happen, they would get enough of that, and then they would put about a foot of soil on top of that. And that soil would be packed down. So by the time you get done with the roof, you potentially had a roof 18 to 24 inches thick. 
and it was commonplace in that day to have a small wall going around the outer edge of the roof and steps going up to the roof and sometimes they would spend time on the roof. Here's the four men with faith coming, desiring that this man would be healed. They couldn't get to Jesus, so they climb up on the roof. And what are they doing? They start tearing through the roof. They're vandalizing someone's house. They're tearing through it. If there's a foot of dirt there, I don't know what they use to get through, some kind of pick or whatever, sharp instrument. And apparently that could be heard underneath in the house. And as they get through the dirt and start to pull the branches and so on back, what would happen? Dirt would fall. No, and Jesus, on the other people. Now, this isn't a nice, clean thing. Houses being vandalized, so to speak. Dirt is falling. And finally, they get through the roof. And these four men lower the paralyzed man. And Jesus doesn't heal him. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Why were they bringing the paralyzed man to be healed? And Jesus says, Sons, your, or Son, your sins are forgiven. Again, I think tied in with the belief in that day, this guy's sin is why he is sick. So Jesus takes care of the sin. Your sins are forgiven. And as we'll find next week, he ultimately heals him. But he takes care of the sin issue first. And what do the teachers of the law think? Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And in forgiving the man's sin, what is Jesus claiming to be? Or who is Jesus claiming to be? God. Then he turns around and heals the guy, which we'll comment on more next week. Again, affirming who he is. In light of what we have discussed this morning, some applications. As we seek to live godly in our daily lives, please see, that should be see, not seek, see making disciples as going where unbelievers live, being on their turf. Don't demand that they come to your turf. Buy up opportunities. Jesus came to our turf. Eternity with the Father, he laid aside. The independent use of his deity, he came to our turf. He's on our turf, and then as he is on our turf, as he's in this world, what does he do? He goes to the turf of the people. He goes into homes. He goes along the seashore and so on. He doesn't say, well, here's where I am. Now come to me and I'll give you some good news. He goes to them. And as you read the epistles, God desires the same for us today. So go to people's turf. As an example, a co-worker shares a struggle. Whatever it may be, you're on their turf. Talk to them. 
Talk about the guy, the man who can forgive sins and then say to the paralyzed, take up your mat and walk. There may be a discussion of the economy, especially in light of recent years. And you can bring up some things that may challenge them to think. A person who wants some counsel, sometimes people, excuse me, just want counsel and help. Talk to them about Christ, God's word. A fellow student is fighting. There's a relational struggle at school. Talk to them about how God might want to work in their life. You might have a friend who struggles with physical appearance. Talk to them. Preach to them. Well, I'm not saying when I say preach to them, get in your preachy voice. Just converse with them. Jesus came to our turf. He's ministering on the turf of the people. And I think a very strong application is you are ambassadors. Light sought every day on your turf. See yourself as living out your faith on the turf of unbelievers. And even if you do nothing else for weeks, but work hard to the Lord or study to the Lord, unbelievers notice Christ at work in you. I've been, really told, I've been told repeatedly about people in our church and their work habits or their study habits without a word being said. That opens doors to share with others. Another application. Jesus' message cannot be separated from his being in action. He preached. What does he do? Then he forgives sins, and then he heals the paralyzed man. His being confirms his message. His message springs from his being. His actions in forgiving the paralytic and healing him confirm his message and his being. Obviously, no other human could forgive sins and heal. The message of Jesus his being and an act and his action work in harmony with one another. Our message in the way we live, our verbal message concerning the gospel should be in harmony with our being and our actions. Just as Jesus displayed. Another application Jesus stands in marked distinction. Jesus stands in marked distinction. To Islam, Muhammad. If you read the Quran, there's do's, do, do, do. Muhammad died, did not rise from the dead. Christ is God's son, has authority over diseases and demons. He forgives sins. It's done on the cross. Therefore, we can rely on him and respond to him out of delight, not out of duty. We find that Jesus stands in marked distinction to Mormonism. Joseph Smith. 
And again, if you know anything about Mormonism, there's a series of dues. Jesus stands in distinction because he is God's son. He has authority over demons. He forgives sins. It's done. We can rely on what he has done because Christ is our life. In some aspects of Christianity, there's a lot of emphasis on leaders and methods and so on. You know, try, do more. You know, if you do this, if you do that, if you try this method, Christ stands in distinction to that because he is God's son. He has authority over diseases and demons. He forgives sins. It's done. We can rely on what he has done. When we read the Gospels and we discuss the Gospels, please don't see the Gospels as a story about some guy. The Gospels are the account of Jesus Christ the Son of God, the one who had authority to forgive sins. And he blows the minds of the teachers of the law by saying, Son, your sins are forgiven. Who alone can forgive sins but God? Well, Jesus could forgive sins because he is God. And then he turns around and heals. The Gospels are not accounts that we just say, I know these facts about Jesus. The person of Jesus Christ is revealed. the one that we commune with, the one that we communicate with, we have fellowship with day by day. It's not a series of facts. Oh, I know he's a son of God. It's not merely a fact. It's a relationship with the one who is unique, who is the good news, who is God's son, and so on. My question is, do you have a relationship with Jesus Christ? If not, why not come to him today? If you do have a relationship with him, my next question is, are you delighting in him? Are you enjoying him? Are you relying on what he has already done and enjoying the life that you have in him? So it wasn't a matter of our getting up this morning and say, what do I need to do for God today? It's a matter of getting up and say, Jesus Christ is my life. I want to respond to his working in me. I want to delight in him. I want to get together with other believers and enjoy relating to Christ who is at work in me. I don't have to do. I respond because of what has already been done. Let's pray together.